We're going to start off each sermon with a couple just helpful hints, all right? Here's here's first tip. If you have a dry erase board at work or in the classroom or at home, you know sometimes after you've used it for a while, it gets kind of stained, and you can scrub and it doesn't help, and there's sprays that you can buy, and and, uh, they may or may not help. But what I'm told is the easiest thing to do is just to take a dry erase marker and color over uh, the, the, the stains and then wipe it off, and it will not only wipe off the fresh dry marker, but it will also wipe off and pull out the stains. Tim Bedwell, who's on our staff here, told me, I've not tried this, but Tim told me, he said, even if it is a permanent marker, if somebody grabs the wrong marker, marks it with a permanent marker, which never comes off of anything, if you'll just color over that with a dry erase marker, it'll also pull that off of your whiteboard. So there's an easy, simple way to keep your whiteboards clean. Here's another one. If the posts on your car battery are corroded, pour Coca-Cola on them, and it will remove the corrosion. Pretty simple. Makes you wonder what it does to your stomach. (laughs) The second practical of James, second practical chapter of James, begins with these words, all right? James chapter 2, verse 1 and following. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, do not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there, or you sit on the floor at my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But if you have insulted the poor, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are, you not the ones who are, are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name to him to whom you belong? And you don't have to read that too long before you begin to pick up on the picture and see it visually in your mind. James is a great storyteller, and why shouldn't he be? He learned from the best. The James that writes this little letter that is in the, cl- close to the end of the New Testament is the James who was actually the brother of Jesus. And so he grows up with Jesus, he listens to Jesus, and James and the other siblings of Jesus did not follow Jesus during his lifetime. I kind of get that. The sibling, sibling rivalry thing, you know, my oldest brother thinks he's the Messiah. Sure, yeah, right. You, know, you kind of get that. But once the resurrection has taken place, James becomes the most ardent leader of the early church in Jerusalem, and he writes with a passion and intensity about right actions and right deeds and right thoughts, and he draws these marvelous word pictures. This scene is easy to visualize. Two men walk into the assembly of the church about the same time, but at one glance it would tell you that they didn't arrive together. One man, obviously rich, is dressed extravagantly and smells of expensive cologne. And to the assembly of Christians that morning, he would probably have been an unusual sight since history indicates that the majority of first century believers came from the working class or even the slave class of people. The crowd kind of parts like the Red Sea and they usher him up to the very front where he would have been seated in the front row, the most valued house seat 
in the gathering. <laughs> How times have changed. <clears throat> if he came in this morning, the ushers would put him in the corner seat of the back row, the most coveted seat in the whole house. You see anybody in the front row? Just one. And I'm glad you're here. <laughs> but you see, whether it's front row or back row, the picture's the same. Whatever's the most important place, that's where you'd be put. And you can see it working in the minds of the leadership. Oh, let's treat this guy good. We're going to need him when we come to next year's budget. Let's not let him escape. Let's make him feel welcome. Well, happening at the same time, you have the other visitor who's completely overlooked, or worse, sort of dismissed, and no wonder, not only is he poor, but he may have the odor of one who has not bathed recently, probably because he didn't have access to that. He, too, is unique to the first century church, but at the opposite end of the spectrum, and finally somebody notices him looking a bit lost and quickly shuffles him off to some obscure corner of the building where he will not have the opportunity to be seen by the rich man who's in the most royal of seats. And you can almost hear the indignation in the scratching of John's quill, as, or James's quill, as he writes these words. He is livid with indignation about such treatment. You see, in the eyes of God, no soul appreciates or depreciates best on his or her exterior. Jesus died for the poor and the rich, the handsome and the homely, the lovable and the unlovely, the homeowner and the homeless. You name it, Jesus died for them. And aren't you glad that God doesn't show favoritism? Because if he did, many of us here would not be here. I might not be here. You might not be here. If God was partial, if God was one who showed favoritism, if God picked his favorites, I suspect most of us wouldn't be here. There is a great story in the 10th chapter of the book of Acts. You've got to remember, in the early church, the ancient church, from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 9 in the book of Acts, the early church, the many thousands that were converted to Christianity in the early church all came from a Jewish background. There, there were no Gentiles in the early church all the way up through chapter 9. And so the early church is an extension of the Jewish heritage because every one of them had come out of that Hebrew background. But in chapter 10, we are introduced to a man by the name of Cornelius. The Bible describes him as God-fearing, one who prayed regularly and who did his best to help those who were in need. And Cornelius is praying at 3 o'clock one afternoon, and, and he has this vision. And in the vision, an angel tells him, call for the man Peter, who is in Joppa. And so when the prayer time was over and the vision was gone, he called a couple of his aides and he sends them, sends them to Joppa to ask for a man by the name of Peter. Now the next day, before the guys get to the house, Peter's up on the rooftop where he is staying and they're fixing lunch down below. They're about ready for lunchtime. And Peter has this vision. And God lets down a sheet or a tarp from heaven. And on this tarp are all these unclean animals. And God says... Peter, get up, kill and eat. And Peter says something like this. Are, are you serious? I have never eaten anything unclean in my life. I'm not about to start right now. And God says, Peter, do not call anything unclean that I have made clean. And this happens three times. God is drilling it into him. 
And just as the vision is over for the third time, there is a knock at the door. Peter goes downstairs, open it up, and these guys said, we are looking for a man named Peter. And the Holy Spirit tells Peter at that point in time, go with these guys. And so Peter does. Now you have to understand, when it comes to favoritism, you have never seen the divide between Jew and Gentile at that day and time in history. This has got to be hard for Peter. This is why God did supernatural things to make it happen because it wouldn't have happened of its own volition. No respecting Jewish man would have been seen walking with Gentiles, let alone traveling to where one of them lived. And so God works in Peter and sends him on the way. Peter gets to Cornelius' house. There's a whole crowd of people gathered there in the room. And Peter begins to preach to them about the grace of Jesus Christ. And he begins with these words, chapter 10, verses 34 and 35. And he says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and who do what is right. Peter got it. And he preaches about Jesus Christ. And Cornelius and those who are there accept the message. And the Gentiles enter the church for the first time. And aren't you glad? Because with a few exceptions in this assembly, all of us are Gentiles, have come from a Gentile background. If God had been partial, if God had showed favoritism, we'd be lost. The problem of favoritism in the text is an outgrowth of our infatuation with the superficial. This story is written in a hypothetical manner, but I wouldn't be a bit surprised if James hadn't witnessed this very thing happening in the early church. Uh, James writes it in such a way that you think, boy, that could have really happened. Maybe James saw it, or maybe James heard about it happening in, in some assembling sometime, and so he uses this as an illustration of what not to happen in the kingdom. Now, I know James didn't write it for encouragement, but there's a, there's a little bit in me that says, I am relieved to know that the people of the first century struggle with some of the same things that we do. You know, misery really does love company. And I take a little bit of companionship from this passage saying, okay, okay. You know, the first century church wasn't perfect either. They were dealing with problems that we deal with, and, and, and that's good. But, but the problem is, we allow, at first glance, to see those things and draw conclusions that are seldom right. Often the man who drives a new hybrid luxury car is viewed with more esteem than the guy who cruises around in an old pickup truck with faded paint. Or the woman who looks like she just stepped out of the pages of a fashion catalog seems to draw a lot more attention than the woman without makeup who's pushing a stroller with twins. And so we, we draw some conclusions. I bet those people are really happy and I bet these other people are miserable. But, for instance, the guy in the luxury hybrid may be stressed to the max and up to his eyeballs in debt while the driver of the faded pickup truck is debt-free and enjoying life and having the best time. Or the fashionably dressed woman may be lonely and struggling to keep her marriage together or struggling to find just the right genuine relationship in this world while the new mother pushing the stroller has never been happy in her life because she has the gift of two children that she's raising as a gift from God. Be careful not to draw the wrong conclusions because things may not always be what they seem to be. So don't show favoritism. Take a look at this picture. What do you see? You see a face? 
How many of you see a face? Let me see. See a face? Yeah, okay. All right. That's, that's what I see. Some of the rest of you see something else. Oh, yeah. See, if you turn the picture the other way, it's, it's a lot easier to see. Okay. So it, it's easy to look at something and say, oh, I know what that is. And you draw a conclusion. Well, it may not always be the right conclusion. That's why favoritism is never good. It always sends the wrong picture. Once again, James is not inciting rebellion against the rich. He's just warning us not to treat them with favor because they are rich. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, I'm sure the rich can't be as spiritual as the poor. (laughs) Really? Where did you hear that? On what basis did you draw that judgment? Isn't that an expression of favoritism right there? Isn't that a little bit of snobbery right there? You see, it's not not about what somebody has or doesn't have. It's, It's about drawing judgments at a glance. And before you go much farther with that particular theory, you need to realize, everybody listen, you need to realize that by the standards of the church when James wrote this letter, everybody in this assembly, regardless of where you are, what you have, every one of us is the rich person. Comparatively speaking, we're the rich people. So when you, you know, when you try to use that line of logic, you've got a self-indictment going on. And, and, and you can be rich in a lot of ways, and you can be poor in a lot of ways. It doesn't always have to be with just the physical wealth. When I look at my life, when I look at your lives, do you realize how rich we are to, to live in a country where we have the freedoms that we enjoy, where you can go to the grocery store and find just about anything that you want, and, and more than that, where most of us have enough in our pantries that we'll get by for a while. There, you know, we are rich in so many ways with the love of family and friends and freedom. And brings me to the question, if I'm that rich, if you're that rich, what are we doing with this legacy of great wealth in all these areas, physical, financial, spiritual, family, social, you name it. What, are we, what kind of a legacy are we living? I've had several of you ask what we will do with the extra money if we pay off our debt. Now, I, I've talked about this before, and, and, and I, as a matter of fact, I've talked about it enough that I think everybody should hear it, but there have been a lot of people who haven't been here when I've talked about it, and so I have to keep talking about it until everybody knows. So if you've heard it and you think, I already know that. Okay, just hang on with me, all right? You can take a couple-minute vacation right now. I'm giving you permission for a nap if you want, if you already know everything on this one, all right? But some don't, and, and so I'm trying to, to help you understand that we have this obligation for a legacy. Now, this is our 50th anniversary year, and we're shooting for a goal of $5 million, which would pay off the indebtedness, which was about 4.3, leaving us with $700,000 to do some great deeds of ministry. Now, why are we doing this? Well, because I think it's time. First of all, debt is a, is a ball and chain around our necks. $400,000 every year in our budget goes to pay the mortgage, and most of that is interest. And I don't like that because, you know, I, I, you can stop and think about, well, what, what we give as families here, well, well, all of my giving is going toward debt retirement. Well, it's all spread out more than that, but yeah, that, that you could look at it that way. I could look at it that way. I don't want my giving going to debt retirement. I want my giving going to do something in ministry because debt is such a burden. We need to get rid of it. Well, what are we going to do with the extra? How will that be spent? I don't want to give to the program until I know how it's going to be spent. Well, 
I'm not sure how it's going to be used yet. I'll tell you a couple ideas, but let me assure you this, that the church leadership isn't going to go all GSA on you. Okay? We're not going to rush off to some place and spend, you know, into some, you know, exotic island and do something. You know, we've got a plan. You know, let me share my, my dreams with you again. These are my dreams. They may not be yours. They may reflect some of you. You may even be, have better dreams for the kingdom. But I dream of a church that could pay for dozens of wells to be drilled in faraway places to provide clean water for people who just need clean water to drink. I, I, I dream of church that could pay for hundreds of children to get cleft palate surgeries or tonsillectomies so that they would have a chance at a normal life in the cultures where they lived or, or for hundreds of solar-powered tape recorders and the Bible on tapes and commentary on tapes for the country of Ghana so the people there could hear the Bible and they could hear about the Bible and learn God's Word or for thousands of Bibles to be given out to people in their own native languages where they've never had the Bible before. I dream of a church that could build a hospital in India or a children's home in Africa or who could rescue hundreds of young girls who are enslaved in the global sex trade business. I dream of a church who could provide a Christian counseling, mentoring, life coaching center in this community that would help save marriages and encourage hurting people who live in our neighborhoods or who live right in our own homes. I dream of a church who can expand our space and horizons for our youth, who very soon will be the next wave of leadership in the kingdom of God. When I hear people say that my son or daughter doesn't really want to come because there isn't enough room, then I know we're not doing enough for tomorrow. I dream of a church who could build a Christian-assisted living center where not only could our elderly be cared for, but could be cared for as an extension of our faith. It could be done in a Christian environment. I don't have time to go through my whole list. As a matter of fact, I doubt that I will live long enough to see this list of dreams become a reality. And I really hope I get to live a long time. You see, there is no limit to the dreams. There's just a limit to the resources. But oh, what we could do if we could free up those resources. And you say, well, which one of them will we do? I don't know, because that depends on what we as a congregation decide to give. Here's, here's the catch-22. I don't want to contact missionaries and our co-workers and our brothers and sisters in Christ in India and say, hey, if we gave you $250,000, could you build a hospital there? And they do all this research and they come back and say, yeah, we could build a clinic here in this area. If, if, we, if you give us a quarter million dollars and then we write back and say, sorry, the money didn't come on. Here's a check for 100. We hope this helps a little. You see, you don't want to get somebody's hopes up. You don't want to get them dreaming big about something that we're not able to come through with. So we won't know what we will do with it completely until we have it to do with. But these are the kinds of ideas that we're looking at. We want to make it last. We want to do things that last for in eternity. You know, I, I know people give, give legacies to hospitals and to universities and to colleges and, and all these wonderful things, and, and those are good things to do, but you know what? I don't care if, if our name is ever on some dormitory at some university because someday that, that university will be no more, and someday that hospital wing will be torn down when another facility is built. 
I want to invest I want to invest my life and my legacy. I want this church to invest our lives and legacies into that which lasts for eternity, that somebody in heaven could say, because you gave and because the message of Jesus Christ came to my part of the world, I found Jesus as my Savior. Now, isn't that a lot better than having your name in stone on some hospital wing? I don't mean to take away from that. That's great stuff. But to do that and to neglect that which is eternal just doesn't make sense to me. So here's the plan. Through May, the leadership is gearing up to make their commitments. Leaders must lead. Through the summer, I want all of us to pray what we can do and at, in the fall, sometime around September, in that region, we'll make our pledges for this 50-year dream. And then in December, the actual 50th anniversary date of the church, why, uh, we'll, we'll celebrate. We'll celebrate. And, and maybe it's not this year, maybe you can't give everything this year, but there'll be a two or three year pledge. I just want us all to do this together because it's a, a great opportunity. And, and, and maybe part of this is so passionate to me because of this image that is burned into my memory. Every time I read this passage in James, I see this picture of when I was in India a few years ago. On, on the first Sunday night that we were there, we went to this Burmese refugee congregation that was in this part of the city of New Delhi, these Burmese refugees had no hope of ever improving their life because they could not get out of that refugee area. And so with very little, they were trying to get by. And we walked into this church building. It was just a room. It wasn't a building as we know a church building, but that's where the church was gathering. And the size of it would be only like maybe one of our classrooms here, and it was simply packed wall to wall with people. You had all these refugees sitting shoulder to shoulder um, with a small, maybe 12-inch, 14-inch aisle that just kind of snaked its way to the, to the front. And, um, oh, it was, it was a hot evening in India, and uh, there wasn't much ventilation in the room. Uh, the smells were uh, rather overpowering, and, and yet when we walked in, they, they escorted us up to the front. There were about three or four chairs on this small little platform, and they gave me the best chair because I was speaking that evening. I was the guest speaker. I got the best seat in the house, and I looked out over these people sitting on that hard floor, and this picture comes to mind. I'm the rich guy who came to preach, and I got the best seat in the house. I've never felt more conspicuous, and I've never felt worse than at that moment. If I could have, I would have bought all of their freedom and given them a chance at life. I, I wish I could have bought their freedom. And I'm sitting there thinking, what in the world do I, this guy from America who has life so easy, who by their standards is rich, what do I have to say to this congregation who is living day by day, moment by moment, without much hope? And so the only thing I could preach to them was about heaven. Because I think when you're in a situation like that, if you can look ahead to know the best is still yet to be, hopefully, hopefully they'd be encouraged. I can't read this passage of James without seeing that picture in my mind. You see, 
Paul James uses the example of rich versus poor. That's only one of many ways that we can show favoritism. Celebrity status over ordinary living, physical beauty over average looks, power over non-influence, formal education over mere experience. You can find just about anything you want in order to be partial or to show favoritism. And James says, you ought not to do it. Shame on you, Christian, if you're doing it. But James doesn't just scold us. He gives us a way to learn how to deal with the with the temptation to show favoritism. And and that's where we are in the second part of our text. James chapter 2, verses 18 and following, it says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but you commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. You've broken the whole thing, in other words. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let me give you three simple things to remember to help you avoid the temptation to show favoritism. Number one, remember what we all have in common. We are all guilty of breaking God's law. We are all sinners. Even the best among us is way guilty of sinning before God. So we are all sinners, and we're all in the same sinking boat. In this year, marking the 100th anniversary of the tragic maiden voyage of the Titanic, I am reminded that some of the richest men in the world stood on that deck after they'd struck the iceberg. John Jacob Astor, Benjamin Guggenheim, Isidore Strauss, and along with them, next to them, were men from the third-class steerage section of the boat who'd spent every last penny they had just to buy a ticket to come to America to hope for a fresh start, and there they stood, the rich and the poor, going down with the Titanic. They shared a common fate. No amount of money, power, fame, personality, or good looks could make a difference at that moment. You see, we dare not show favoritism when we are all in the same desperate need of the saving grace of Christ because we are sinking. As the old hymn goes, we are sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. So remember, we're all in the same boat together. You and I have no right to show favoritism to anybody else. (laughs) We're, We're in it together. And remember that only love bridges the gap, the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, treat those around you like you'd want to be treated. Do you like it when you're on the receiving end of favoritism, partiality, or snobbery? Of course not. None of us like that. So don't be that way to others. And then remember to be merciful. James says, mercy triumphs over all. Mercy is integral to the character of God. All through the Old Testament, you see the mercy of God over and over and over again displayed. You come to the New Testament, and Jesus is the personification of mercy. His whole three-year ministry in this world was filled with acts and deeds and words of mercy. What's mercy? It's not getting what you deserve. It's being stopped by the police officer for, for speeding, but you only get a warning ticket. That's mercy. You didn't deserve that, but that's what you got. From the pen of the prophet Micah comes these challenging words that transcend time, generations, and cultures. Do you know this one? This is one you need to know. Micah 6, 8. 
He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now that's a legacy. As God has extended mercy to us, now it's our opportunity to extend mercy to others. Not favoritism, but mercy to love the unlovable. You'll undoubtedly recognize the name of uh, Alfred Nobel as the inventor of dynamite, and uh, out of which came then explosive weapons, and he became a hugely wealthy man as a result of that. You'll also recognize the name of Alfred Nobel as the benefactor of the Nobel Peace Prize. But do you remember the story of how he got from dynamite creator to benefactor of one of the most prestigious prizes in the world today? <laughs> Happened this way. One morning in the year 1888, he woke up, took his newspaper, and read his own obituary in the columns in the front of the paper. Now, I know a lot of people say, you know, jokingly, well, I looked in the paper this morning, my obituary wasn't there, so I'm having a good day. <laughs> he wasn't having a good day. When you wake up and you read your own obit in the paper, it's not good. Now, here's why that happened. His brother had died, and the newspaper got mixed up as to which one of the Nobel brothers they listed, and they listed Alfred. But it was what was in the obituary that struck him. It called him king of dynamite, king of explosive weapons. And he thought, that's not the legacy I want to leave behind. And so he changed that trajectory of his life at that moment. And that's when he devised this plan for the Nobel Peace Prize and gave all this money that he had earned through the dynamite and the weapon industry, gave it to that prize so that he would be remembered as one who loves mercy and peace more. If you were to read your obituary tomorrow morning, is there anything you'd want to change? What's your legacy? Would, would it read sort of like this? That you were known as a person who acted justly and who loved mercy and who walked humbly with your God and that wherever you went, you didn't show favoritism, you just showed the mercy of Jesus Christ to all people. That's what God wants from us this morning. Easy to understand, just hard to do, which may mean this is the day of our decision to change how we look at life, to be merciful because he has been merciful to us. While we stand and while we sing, if you need Jesus Christ, you come.